All right, we're in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 22. Let's read our text together. And one day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and they were calm. And he said to them, that is the disciples, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water that they obey him. At this point in the Gospel of Luke, Luke will now record for us several miracles in which Jesus performed, testifying again to his true identity. Luke stated clearly at the beginning of chapter 8 that Jesus was able to perceive within the hearts and the minds of the individuals who were listening to the words in which he had to say. Now, Luke is demonstrating for his reader, who is a man named Theophilus, we get this from verse 1 of chapter 1, Theophilus was a Greek gentleman who apparently Luke, as a physician, was in his um, home and served him uh, personally. Physicians in the time of the Roman oppression of of, uh, Israel Um, worked for individual families. They didn't uh, just have an open public practice like physicians have today. Only the rich could afford their services. And Luke apparently became a Christian, began, of course, in the book of Acts to travel with the apostles and became a trusted companion to Paul the apostle, who I believe had physical ailments of his own that he needed to overcome. We see that in Galatians and, of course, in 2 Corinthians. Uh, That being said, he writes back to the man in which he is uh, employed to two letters. One is the Gospel of Luke, and the other is the Book of Acts. And these letters were meant for Theophilus to obtain a, a methodical account of everything that Jesus ever said and did. And so now we come to Luke chapter 8, and again establishing the understanding of the true identity of Jesus Christ, that he is God, we now see a series of miracles that will climax in Luke chapter 9 with the confession of Peter, as Peter openly declares that he is the Christ, the Messiah. And of course, that is validated later in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 35, as the Father himself says, this is my Son, my Chosen One, listen to Him. But in our text this morning, we come to the reality of the authority of Jesus Christ over the natural elements of this world. But a sub-thought to it all is the lack of faith of the disciples to trust the Word of God. Specifically, in times that would personally challenge them, circumstances and situations in their lives that would bring them to a position of vulnerability where they would begin to maybe question the goodness of God or the faithfulness of God, etc. And Jesus rebukes them. He questions their faith. 
And as a result, we find in our text that this situation was completely uh, uh, constructed by Jesus for a life lesson for the disciples. Undoubtedly being privileged to the personal interpretations of the parables, which we learned last week together, the disciples probably thought that they had finished grad school, that this was it. They had just earned their doctorates. There is nothing more that the disciples could learn because now they were of the inner circle that Jesus had around him and privileged to the information in which Jesus would convey and provide to the people. However, though, Simply graduating with a doctorate degree and actually applying that doctorate degree in everyday practical life can be two different things. This is why a doctor, a medical doctor, must first go to residency. So he takes his knowledge into his practice and learns how to practically apply that in which he has learned. Jesus apparently brings the disciples to this particular situation for that exact purpose to allow them to exercise their faith and trust in the Word of God, to allow them to see that God is capable of performing that in which He has promised to them, regardless of the circumstances and the trouble or the tribulations that they find themselves within. He wants His disciples to know that they can trust His Word. And what a lesson for us today. As one aptly said, many will say that they believe in God, but it's something completely different to believe God, to believe Him day by day, to trust Him, to see us through the trials, troubles, and tribulations that this life will bring about uh, in our lives. And as the disciples, we will find ourselves often in these situations at just a moment when we least expect them. Now, why do I say that? Well, because the storm came out of nowhere, it says in our text. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But how often do we find ourselves in our personal lives where things are going along fairly well, things are good, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, we get blindsided by some difficulty. And it kind of takes your feet from underneath you. It kind of sweeps you away, you know. Uh, I, I was at, in Florida some years back, and I, we were on the beach, and we were just enjoying our time there. But then I began to laugh because there were individuals who were walking in the surf. And as they were walking in the surf at certain times, they wouldn't anticipate the strengths of the waves either coming in or pulling back out, and it would take their feet from right underneath them, and of course, I would do the pastoral thing and laugh. You know? Yes, I, walk, I watch America's Funniest Home Videos. I, I admit it. You just can't get enough. But we all have been in situations where we have been blindsided by circumstances and we have concluded that this is it. We are down for the count. It's at these moments in life that it is so imperative as Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, to remember the Word of God and to believe it. Because we're all going to be there someday. It is impossible to avoid trials, troubles, and tribulations if we follow Jesus Christ. 
If you haven't experienced those things, I will say prophetically, you will as a believer at one point or another. And Jesus wanted his disciples to be prepared. So he sees them in verse 22, if you'll turn there with me. And one day he got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out to do so. Jesus clearly states, let us go. He had been teaching and ministering to the crowds. He is now exhausted. It is most likely late in the evening. And now on the Sea of Galilee, most likely moving from uh, the west to the east coast of it, uh, I'm sorry, from the east coast to the west coast, he is leaving from Capernaum, making his way across because he has an appointment that we'll look at next week together with this very unusual individual. And each and every one of the disciples, the majority of them were fishermen, completely accustomed to their surroundings, obviously knowing boating very well, knowing the Sea of Galilee very well. And so they undoubtedly believed that this was just going to be an easy shot across the Sea of Galilee. To the point where as they set out, in verse 23, Jesus fell asleep at the back of the boat. We know that from the other gospel writers. But yet, as they were proceeding across the Sea of Galilee, a windstorm not uncommon to that region. The Sea of Galilee is actually 600 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by mountains, and there are valleys at one end of it and an, uh, at the one end of it and the other end of it that allow for these gale force winds to come out of nowhere, especially during the winter time, and literally take the lake from a placid, calm condition to seven to eight foot waves just over a mere matter of minutes. And they appear to be in the middle of the lake when one of these whirlwinds come upon the lake, crashing against the boat, filling the boat with water. And as fishermen, they were aptly capable to discern the situation that they found themselves in. So as the storm came down the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And so being fishermen, we can ascertain that they knew their circumstances were dire. This was serious. The storm had to be greater than they anticipated. The boat was filling with water. And as a result, they began to panic. Thinking that they were perishing. But as a result, they turn to Jesus and cry out to him and ask him to save them. In fact, the other gospel writers tell us that clearly, that they say, Lord, save us, for we are perishing. Now, again, though the disciples were fully aware of the fact that this storm could be a possibility in their crossing, it is clear that they did not anticipate it. It's also clear that they were not mentally prepared for it. 
And as a result, they were taken back by the fact that they had engaged this storm as they were crossing the Sea of Galilee. Being fishermen, they knew that at this minute, at this particular moment, I should say, the boat was in desperate situation. And it would be easy to conclude that they were about to perish under the weight of this storm. When we find ourselves in these troubling circumstances, we often, even, as, even if they are as legitimate as they can possibly be, we can often be misled by them. For example, one of the most difficult things to hear from your doctor is, of course, a diagnosis of cancer. It is of something that individuals are desperately afraid of. They know that in many cases the outcome is bleak. And yet, even though as a believer in Jesus Christ faced with that dilemma, God would have us not simply weigh that circumstance in our own understanding, but allow Him into the equation. For example, cancer to me would be devastating. I could do nothing about it, me personally. But bringing God into the equation changes everything. What is cancer to God? He can heal it immediately if he so desires. It is nothing to him. Whenever we come to a place like this, we often draw conclusions from a limited perspective. Please write that down. Whenever we come to these times of trial, trouble, and tribulation, we often draw conclusions from a limited perspective. And of course, I am not um, stating that these are not legitimate concerns, for obviously the boat was taking water and they were in danger. The concern is legitimate. However, though, let us understand that our perspective upon the concern, even though it be legitimate, is still limited by our own personal finite existence. Let us understand that the moment we became a Christian, we know that God saved us for a purpose. To fulfill the workmanship, as Ephesians 2.10 tells us, that God predestined from the foundations of the world for us to fulfill. God called us for a purpose, to fulfill that purpose. God has us in a ministry to serve and to fulfill the commission of the body of Christ. So the moment I become a Christian, what I am saying is that there is an overall narrative that I am now subjected to that I wasn't previously to. Meaning that there's a purpose for my existence. There's a reason why I'm living. There is a, uh, a, a reason that God has placed me in the body of Christ as He is. And until that purpose is completed, I know that God will see me through each and every trial and trouble and tribulation that I face. Now, some years ago, I read an example of a young man who in his 20s was diagnosed with testicular cancer. And as a result, he was devastated by it. He was an athlete. He was in perfect shape and so forth. And he didn't understand how this could occur. 
but trusted the Lord at that moment and stated, Lord, I don't know why this ha- you have allowed this in my life, but I'm going to trust you in this moment. He began the treatments. He began the process of dealing with that cancer diagnosis. And while he was going to treatments and in those uh, rooms with others who were getting treated for cancer also, he began sharing his faith as a Christian. He began showing them the light of Jesus Christ. He began to explain that he had a peace that surpassed all understanding because he knew that even if this life were to, be, uh, were to end, he'd have eternal life with Jesus for the rest of his existence. And a young lady who is dealing with uh, ovarian cancer, who is in a terminal condition, but yet still fighting the process, gave her heart to Christ and therefore, when she died, was with him for all eternity. After this young lady accepted Jesus Christ, this young man went for a follow-up with his doctor, and the doctor said, the cancer is gone. We have no traces of it in your body whatsoever. And this young man took it to be this, that the Lord had a mission for him to go into this area, which he never would have gone into otherwise, and to be a witness to this young lady. And then when the Lord was finished with that, he healed him and the young man went on to live his life. Now, from that young man's perspective, he didn't know that God was going to do that. His chemotherapy may have been successful or it may not have been. But he subjected himself to the will of God. He subjected himself to the word of God and trusted it at that moment and allowed himself to be used. He allowed himself to get past his own personal circumstances and think of the life of others. And because of that, that young woman who was destined to spend eternity apart from God is now living with Christ for all eternity in heaven. It's extremely you know, extraordinary story. But our circumstances are always met by our limited perspective, and unfortunately, we draw all kinds of conclusions based on that limited perspective. And often, the very first thing we do as Christians is that we lose the overall narrative that we are now subjected to as believers, and that is the simple fact that I am not going anywhere until the Lord calls me home, right? And if the Lord calls me home, then I'm not going to do anything to resist that, am I? But I know that the Lord, as long as He has a mission and a plan for my life, that I will be here and I will serve Him and He will see me through the difficulties one way or another. The second thing we often do through this limited perspective, as the disciples did, is we limit God to our personal abilities. Well, if I can't do it, then obviously God can't do it. What kind of reasoning is that? That's a very limited, shallow understanding of who God is. And so when I find myself in trials, troubles, and tribulations, I often become faithless because I begin to attribute to God my personal limitations. Oh, I could never get myself out of this, Lord, so how can you? See, 
that is simply underestimating who God is. Often from a lack of understanding and knowledge of truly of who God is. And we do this constantly. The disciples saw the boat sinking. They were perishing. Jesus, in contrast, is sleeping in the back of the boat. Now, you can determine from that that Jesus simply doesn't care. Well, if I die, I know where I'm going. I don't care, you know. Or, is it because he knew that this storm was nothing? Now, Jesus fully knew the storm was going to occur before it occurred. And yet, he was able to rest. And even when confronted with the storm, it is obvious that Jesus was still in control. His peace should have uh, um, comforted the hearts of the disciples, but yet they misinterpreted it. Look, at look, he's sleeping like Jonah, you know? And of course, being Jewish men, they would have had the story of Jonah in their mind. And of course, as the ship hit the difficult seas and Jonah was sleeping in the bowels, it was because of the fact that God had brought these things about because Jonah was disobedient to God. But here they could have looked at Jesus and said, well, he's asleep. It just doesn't seem to bother him that we're going through such things. Now, Jesus must have been awful tired because I've been on Lake Michigan in a small craft when the waves have surged quite quite high. And I don't know how you sleep in that, you know. I mean, you are going up and down and everybody's singing the theme song to Gilligan's Island and you're just like, good, we're dead, you know. And, um, and you don't really understand how dangerous the Great Lakes are. The number of sunken ships in the Great Lakes is enormous. But that being said, Jesus was calm, completely in control. And they woke him. And their conclusion was, they're drowning, they're dying, Master, Master, save us, we're perishing. The last thing that we do when we find ourselves in these situations, after forgetting the big picture, after limiting God to our ability, the last thing we do is we often run to the worst possible conclusion that there is. Ever since the conception of the internet, people have been wrongfully diagnosing themselves through WebMD and other medical sites. And, you know, you're always convinced that after evaluating your symptoms, you have the rarest African disease possible here in the suburbs of Chicago. And you're certain, that's it, I'm a goner. I have an itch in my nose and it is due to the tsetse fly taking residence there and, uh, you know, birthing babies. What? I don't know where I make up this stuff from, guys. It's just flows. But we've all done it, haven't we? At one time or another, we have misdiagnosed ourselves. And then we go to the doctor, who, of course, has been educated and trained and gone through residency and probably has seen a hundred other patients with the same uh, symptoms as you have. And, and, and they look at you and they say, no, 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 you, you got itchy nose because, well, you know, you, you got a little infection, that's all. You know, or you, you got something else that's really minor. Now, what is our first reaction? Always. 
No, 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 doctor, you must be wrong. I went to the website and I had every single one of the symptoms for Tsetse invasion, you know. We do this all the time. We do this all the time in our limited perspective of things. And of course, the doctor's right. Gives us an antibiotic or some easy uh, cure for our problem. But yet we often, at those times, psych ourselves to think we know better, convince ourselves of that, and even when someone tries to speak reason to us, we seem unwilling to listen. We've all done it, I'm sure. But Jesus, notice what he does. He simply awakes, verse 24, they went and woke him and saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And they were was and there was a calm. Jesus demonstrates his deity in this command. Now, there's something that I must pull out of the text for you due to the Greek word that is used here, represented by the English word rebuke. This English, this English word rebuke is representative of a Greek word that is used in other places in the gospel for Jesus rebuking a disease and Jesus rebuking demonic uh, spirits, etc. And there are some who believe that this storm was created by Satan to resist his travels, to keep him from arriving in his destination, which we will see next week was significant, and to, you know, hinder him from the earthly ministry in which he had. That's possible. We do know that Satan does have a certain control over the weather. We see that in the book of Job. Um, There is a possibility there, but Luke doesn't indicate that. And I find that the word usage that Jesus uses here, the Greek word that he uses, he uses in all different kinds of circumstances towards demonic forces, but also towards inanimate objects also. So to assume that Satan is behind this storm is just that. It is an assumption. It is speculation. But we know in either case, the weather was subjected to the command of Christ. And that is the true essence of what Luke is trying to communicate to all of us. That is the authority of Jesus Christ and his natural creation, over his natural creation. It states very clearly in the Greek that when he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, they ceased, and the word cease there is in the tense where it ceased immediately. And the lake went back to its perfect placid calmness that it originally was in when they first left the dock in in, uh, uh, Capernaum. In moments, in seconds. Clearly indicating the supernatural ability and the authority of Jesus Christ over the weather, the natural occurrences. There are many who speculate that Dire weather occurrences, each and every one of them represents the judgment of God upon people. 
This came up, of course, when Katrina hit New Orleans. And they say, look, the sins of New Orleans brought upon them the judgment of God through the form of Katrina. Or if a tornado touches down. Or if uh, some other uh, horrific occurrence, a tsunami, etc. The problem with this uh, thinking is that often, you know, Christians die and suffer in this also. In these moments in time. We know that God can completely control the weather and use the weather according to his divine sovereign will. But we also know that God created the earth with a systematic methodology for which the weather is created and moves across the face of the earth. That it rains under certain conditions, that it snows under other conditions, that it's warm one day, cold the next, and so forth. And then, of course, now we have the conversation of global warming and climate change, etc. I don't believe that every natural disaster is definitively an indication of God's judgment. I think we must, be, we, may, we must be very careful before we make that declaration, not knowing if that's God's judgment or not. Now, obviously, it's easy to conclude that, but let us understand that God told us clearly how he would judge the world at his second coming and clearly articulates that. And unless we know in, in, in some way for certain, I think we must, we must be careful. Because, for example, we've seen tornadoes hit, churches destroyed, people killed. At other times, we've seen tornadoes hit. We've seen preschoolers gather in their classrooms singing praises unto God and miraculously spared from the tornado's devastation. So I don't know if every occurrence is a judgment of God, and therefore I am slow to say that. But we know that God can use these things. We know that God will use these things in the last days. But we have evidence that Satan can use them also from the book of Job. So let us just be careful that we don't assume something that God has not clearly told us was from his hand. But here it is undeniable. Everything stopped. The storm did not bother Jesus whatsoever. What bothered Jesus was the faith of the disciples. Now again, the faith of the disciples were put to this test. And what do I mean by a test? We talk about God testing his people. What do I mean by that? God is not testing us to see if we pass or fail before him, for he knows what we're going to do before we do it. God will often allow circumstances in our lives to bring forward from our hearts our true measure of faith before him in these particular times. For example, these testings are not for God's determination, but to allow us to see where our hearts are before him. And so he looks to the disciples and he says to them, where is your faith? 
In Luke, he, I'm sorry, in Mark, he says, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The circumstance had revealed to themselves that they truly yet had not placed their full assurance, trust, and confidence in the Word of God. Well, you say, well, how could they? Because of what he said in verse 22. He said, let us go across to the other side. He told them up front that they were going to make it. There was no doubt in the uh, journey. They were going to make it to the other side. His word should have carried them through that particular storm, and they chose not to listen to it. I think of the 12 spies that went into the promised land after Moses brought them to the land in which God promised to them. They sent in 12 spies. You know the story. Two came back, Joshua and Caleb, and said, the land is ours. It's cake. God has given it to us. Let's go. The other 10 voices came back and said, no, 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 the walls are too high. There are giants in the land. It is impossible for us to conquer them and to obtain and to take the land. Now, God told them clearly that he was giving it to them. They just needed to trust him, to obey him, to enter in by faith. And yet they resisted and they chose to listen to other voices. Today we have so many voices yelling at us, telling us what to think, what to believe, and what to do. We are now challenged by the number of opinions and pieces of information that we have to overwhelm us when we come to these places of vulnerability and trials, troubles, and tribulations. We have all of these voices yelling at us at those times we're vulnerable in our Christian walk. And yet what we must do at that point is we must rely on that still small voice. We must rely on the word of God at that moment. We must trust God to see us through the storm. We must trust Him to fulfill the promises in which He has made to us. To see us through it. Otherwise, we often, like others, get ourselves even in further trouble by listening to the other voices. This is so hard today. This is so difficult today. You know, obviously everything on the internet is true, right? We've all realized that. We've all come to that conclusion. And yet, that is the number one place that people go for information. It is my hope that here at Calvary Chapel, that when we find ourselves in a difficult situation, that before we run to the God of Google, that we would run to the God of the Bible. And that we would kneel before Him and to ask Him, Lord, what would you have me to do at this moment in time? waiting on him, listening to him in the overwhelming number of voices that are screaming at us at this moment in time. Because it is him and only him that can see us through properly the storm in which we find ourselves within. This is so important, folks. This is so important. Why is it? He asks them here, where is your faith? Because of Psalm 89, 8 and 9. Psalm 89, 8 and 9. 
where the psalmist writes, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea when its waves, waves rise, you still them. Interesting. The psalmist went on in Psalm 93, verses 3 and 4. Listen to these words. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. Lord on high is mightier than they. This is who we are relying on. He is not a mere man or a simple teacher. Jesus Christ was God and is God today. He is the perfect representation of the Father and His Word should comfort our hearts in times of trouble, in times of tribulation, in times of difficulty, etc. The disciples ended with the question, who can this man be? Because in the extraordinary occurrence, they saw Jesus overcome the, su- the natural elements of this world supernaturally, showing and demonstrating his authority that he is God. I don't know about you, but when I look to all of the opinions of Google, when I see that many obtain their information from Wikipedia. Now, does everybody realize that you don't have to be a genius to post something to Wikipedia upon a subject? And that I would strongly encourage you to look at other resources before Wikipedia? And yet, we will take these things. We will take them as a governing idea and we place our decisions upon them and so forth when they are simply the opinion of man and we have the God of all the universe here in our lap through his word and we turn to Google rather than God. Why is that, folks? Where is your faith? Where is your trust? Now, Jesus knew that the disciples would react in the manner in which they did. He didn't draw this out of them to belittle them or to condemn them or to keep them down, but to state this. Okay, you may have privileged information and intellectual insight into who I am and the knowledge in which I convey, but that insight and that intellectualism must be applied practically before it has its perfect effect in the life of the individual. The disciples must, therefore, if you have access to this information, therefore trust the one who is giving you this information to see you through the troubles and trials and tribulations of life. Just because someone has biblical, intellectual, and academic knowledge doesn't mean that they're going to react well when they come to the storms of life. I find that it's the biblical knowledge accompanied by the personal walk of the individual that allows that person to weather the storms that life brings about. We can know about God through His Word. That was my initial goal when I first became a Bible student. I wanted to know about God. And you're like, well, that's good but I was wrong. 
I was wrong. After 30 years of studying the Word of God, it's not that God wants me to know about Him. You know what He wants? God wants me to know Him. Not about Him. He wants me to know Him. And in knowing Him, I can therefore have faith and trust on Him and in Him to carry me through these life difficulties. And though I could recite theological books and I could articulate the 12 points of theology and all this other stuff, I knew all this stuff about God, but yet I didn't have the time spent with Him to say that I actually know Him. You know, when I was a teenager, I thought I knew my dad, right? I knew that my dad was wrong in everything because I was a teenager. I didn't realize until just recently that I didn't know my dad nearly as well as I thought I did. It wasn't until I became 40, 45, and 50 that I really saw and began to know my father, earthly father, and I'm so grateful for him. We need to know God. When you read your word, pray and ask, Lord, help me to know you, not just simply about you. I can quote stats and different Bears players and so forth, but if you ask me, well, do you know them? No, I don't really know them. I know about them, but I don't know them. But God wants us to know him. And that was the gist behind what Jesus says here. And revealing himself to his disciples through these miracles, he wanted to know him. He desired they know him more exclusively and intimately demonstrating and showing that he is God through those things in which he has done through these miracles. That is our pursuit as Christians. That is the, what God desires for us. Where is your faith? He said, notice here, Luke writes in verse 25, and he said to them, of course, where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, notice what they say here, who then is this? They knew about him, but now they were getting to know him. That he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. I love that. That's my prayer for you. As life's difficulties come across your path, and they will, it's not only that I desire that you know the Word of God, but it's also my desire that you know God. Know His heart towards you. Know and understand the relationship that you have through Christ with Him. Know and understand that God doesn't do things haphazardly. And when you know Him, you'll discover that your insight in your, perf- in your particular personal circumstances will be vastly uh, further illuminated than apart from knowing Him and simply knowing about Him. For example, if we go through the trials of life, we are confident that these trials are working in us for the purpose of conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. 
They're all working together for good, all circumstances of life. Peter states in his epistle that God only allows trials as need be in our lives. And James writes to us that these trials have a perfecting purpose within us to bring about to our rationale and our realization where we truly stand with God that we may grow more intimate with Him. These things are not to discourage us and to draw us away from God. They're always meant to draw us closer to God. I wish that all of us could say in our hearts that it's in prosperity that I grow closer to God when I have found that prosperity often drives us from God. It's difficult circumstances that drive us to God because now we are matched with something that is greater than I and I need someone greater than I to see me through this. That's my prayer for you, that not only would you know about God's Word, but that you would intimately and personally know God. A woman came up to D.L. Moody and said, I have found a wonderful promise, Pastor, and she quoted Psalm 56.3. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. But Moody said to her, he said, let me give you a better one. And he quoted Isaiah 12.2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust you and not be afraid. I'm not even going to go to the fear. I'm going to trust him beforehand. And you can see the maturity in that. In closing this morning, may we turn to Psalm 107 together. Listen to the psalmist when he writes these words in light of all that we have learned this morning. Psalm 107, and we're going to begin in verse 23. In verse 23 of Psalm 107, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to the children of men. Warren Worsby concluded this segment by stating thus, The disciples failed this test of faith because they did not lay a hold of his word that he was going to the other side. It, was well, it has well been said that faith is not believing in spite of circumstances, it's obeying in spite of feelings and in consequences. The disciples looked around and saw danger, and they looked within and saw fear. But they failed to look up by faith and see God. 
Faith and fear cannot dwell together in the heart of the individual.